All right, back in Ephesians 4. Now, like most of you that have been here know, usually when we do communion, and the Bible doesn't specify a frequency. Sometimes a church may change that from time to time. Some say once a month, some do it once a week, some do it once a year, some kind of in the middle. Uh, we don't really have an exact charted course. It ends up being roughly once per quarter, uh, which for now I think is a, a good balance. But I usually try to do something uh, communion-specific, uh, which I was actually planning to do this morning, uh, but I realized as I was uh, chewing on where we're at in the book of Ephesians that these three verses that were just read in your hearing are actually uh, very good subject matter for heading into a communion service. I mean, they have everything to do with the type of preparation of heart uh, that is necessary for something uh, that's this serious. So we're just going to press on uh, where we've been. Now, last time, we basically focused in on that one verse, that one statement. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, when you and I choose to yield to sin, and it is a choice, there are personal consequences. There are consequences for those surrounding us. None of us sin in a vacuum. But a truly mature, God-honoring thought process is going to consider and be very bothered by the effect of our sin on God Himself. Again, it says here, it doesn't mention anger in verse 30 as attributed to God. God does, He is a God of wrath. He's a God of justice. He's a God that disciplines. But the motivation mentioned there is not anger and it's not discipline. It's not fear of retribution. But it's more of one aim to our heart as children of His to not want to cause Him pain. When it says God is grieved by our sin, it means that He has an emotional, painful response on His part. Because He's so near to us, because He's actually dwelling within the Christian person, we are His temple. And because of His holy character, and because of His perfect wisdom, that He knows all the ramifications of our choices, and all the blessings that have to be withheld that He wants to give, you think about that. Part of God's grief, let's say you make a decision tomorrow to ignore Him and to go some sinful direction, even for a day. God, even in that moment, comprehends all the chain reactions that come from that one decision. The blessings that have to be withheld. The discipline that's going to come. The hurt that's going to come. The effect on those. All of it He knows. So his prohibitions aren't merely robotic. Don't do this or I'll slap you. Don't do this because I love you. And in our response of love to him, we ought to be saying, I'm not going to do this, Lord, because I love you. Even if you didn't discipline me, I still want to please you. Because of His care for us, His perfect sacrificial love, He actually feels pain when we play the fool and dwell in the tents of iniquity. Alright, now that brings us to verse 31. You know, among the many, uh, maybe uh, more reprehensible curiosities that exist in the field of medicine is a type of tumor that's known as a teratoma. 
These have been the object of uh, really both fascination and horror for many, many centuries. What is thought to be the first reference to one of these kinds of tumor is from a clay tablet that dates back to roughly 900 B.C. that was found in the Royal Library of Nineveh. Uh, So this is something that has been discussed for some time. And uh, ever since then, these things have been superstitiously viewed as uh, signs of good luck and blessing. Uh, Some have seen their presence as uh, some way to predict the future. Some have seen their presence as a visible sign of the devil. But it wasn't until 1896 that doctors actually realized what it was that made these teratomas different than other tumors that were out there. And what makes them so unique and grotesque is the fact that they actually contain multiple different kinds of tissue. I mean, imagine the horror of a person being told by their doctor, uh, you have a tumor that contains hair, bones, organs, and teeth. In fact, uh, the, the name teratoma, that's, it comes from two Greek words, meaning monster tumor. Now, I think it's with that same level of disgust that God wants us to list this view of monster tumors that are found in verse 31. But I guarantee you that your evil nature, through the deceitfulness of sin, is going to do all that it can to sugarcoat and minimize and justify every single one of these things. Now in the world of criminal justice, often you hear the term of a particular offense and they'll call it a white-collar crime. Uh, Maybe some of you have been following uh, what's referred to as Operation Varsity Blues, where several of Hollywood's elite Uh, have been handcuffed and are facing stiff prison sentences for bribing and uh, extortion and different ways to get their kids into prestigious universities. Uh, But what is meant, when you hear white-collar crime, what does that mean to you? Well, it's a more refined sort of evil. You know, here's a a white-collar criminal, right? He says, well, ah, you know, I'm not going into the underworld. What do you think I am? I'd never sell drugs. I'd never kill anybody. I'd never hang out on Skid Row. Are you kidding me? I don't want track marks up my arm. What do you think I am? But they have no problem with Ponzi schemes, embezzling millions out of honest employers' funds, ripping people off in any way imaginable. And of course, they keep their veneer of white-collar crime. Well, I want to suggest to you this list here in verse 31 represents white-collar sins. Somebody can read this and say, well, I don't do the things that are mentioned at the beginning of the next chapter. These aren't necessarily skid row sins. These aren't black of night sins. These aren't the, the things that society at large would look down on. Are they really that bad? See, these are the sins that can flourish right within the walls of conservative churches and careful Christian homes. These kind of, the, of sins can travel with you like they're in your pocket, 
while you sing, My Jesus, I love thee, while you read the scriptures, while you maintain rules, while you speak religious terminology, and all the while they're destroying from within like savage little monsters. Now, before we begin to walk through this list, I want to make just a few important observations about it. First of all, notice no excuse, no tolerance for these sins is to be made. Look at the beginning of verse 31. Let how much? All. Let all of these be put away from you. Here comes your doctor. He says, remember that teratoma? Well, good news. I removed two-thirds of it. What are you going to say? What about the other third? Because you don't want to left in there. Secondly, I've already stated this earlier, but I think we need to keep this solidly in our minds walking through a text like this. This is written directly to Christian people. I think the tendency sometimes is we view a list like this of do's and don'ts, and we want to apply it to everybody at large. Yes, 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 the world shouldn't do these things. Kind of like people view the Ten Commandments. As long as people understand the purpose of the Ten Commandments isn't to show man how righteous he is, it's to show him how ungodly he is. I obviously don't have a problem with them out in public. But I think a lot of people walk by the Ten Commandments and they go, oh yeah, uh-huh, right, man shouldn't do those things. I've never done most of them. And uh, we can look at a list like this and say, that's right, nobody should do this stuff. But it's helpful to remember the audience. Paul is speaking to what would become the flagship church of the first century. He's writing to the cream of the crop of first century Christians that existed when the apostles were still alive. This is the church that would eventually be commended by Christ Himself in Revelation 2. They had their problems, but Christ Himself commended their doctrinal soundness and their fervent labors on His behalf. And uh, Paul makes this very personal. Do you notice that? He says, put these things away from you. Not everybody else. Put them away from you, Ephesus. By proxy, we can say, put them away from you, Berean Baptist Church in Helena. Thirdly, I think it's accurate to make this observation that based on the placement of this list, right after verse 30, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. What comes next? Interpersonal conflict among God's people within the local church especially is one of the situations that grieves God the most. I know I can tell you, speaking from personal experience, I've preached in a lot of different forums, in prisons and nursing homes and churches of different sizes. I've seen hostile faces. I've seen indifferent faces. I've seen people that go from complacent and happy-go-lucky to downright angry by the end of a sermon. I've watched people that 
uh, sit there not caring about anything, and it's like the Spirit of God grips them and buries them with conviction right during the message. But in all of those forums, I can tell you standing up here, one of the most difficult forums to preach in is when there's visible tension between Christian people sitting in the same room. Pour out your heart in preparation to feed people's souls and have to hack through the carnality with an axe to get to the pulpit. Where it feels like you're preaching into a 90 mile an hour headwind and all your best efforts are blowing back at you. And I think of me and my evil, pathetic heart, who's prone to the same things, is bothered by that. How much more would God be? You see, that kind of teratoma in lives, it, it eats away at joy, it eats away at fruit bearing, it eats away at service to others and a host of other good things. And the same's true in a family. High standards are good. The Christian service is good. But it's possible behind that veneer for families to rot away from within. You know, a verse like verse 31 reminds us that no amount of high standards and Christian service and activity for God is going to make up for a lack of Christian character. And where that's most prominently displayed is in the relationships that you and I have in everyday life. So we can have all the scaffolding in order and have this teratoma within chewing us away. Fourthly, notice the variety of terms that are used under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I find it interesting. He doesn't just say, don't be nasty. But he uses all these different words all of them with a different nuance. And one of the things that tells us is ugliness of attitude, even among saved people, wears a lot of different hats. Some of it's very fast-moving and explosive. Some of it simmers for years. And some of it opens its mouth wide. Some of it says nothing, at least for a long time. But... All of it must be dealt with. Now let's define some of these words. What are Christian people who don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, what are we to put away from ourselves? Let all bitterness. The word bitterness simply means acrid. We know it well. You bite into something and say it's bitter, that's not a compliment. It's a, it's a pungent and nasty taste. And of course, when it's applied to a life, much of the time it amounts to a refusal to forgive, which is carried out over the long haul. It's nursing some hurt as a constant companion. It's walking around with a chip on the shoulder. 
You know, it's interesting. The Greek word for bitterness here, the noun form, is only used four times in the New Testament. I'll give them to you quickly. In Acts chapter 8, here's Simon the sorcerer. He's a false convert. And uh, Peter tells him, I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity, the poison of bitterness. He was telling him, you're still a lost man. Romans 3, in that a devastating account of what mankind's heart is like before God, he says our mouth by nature without Christ is full of cursing and bitterness. Then we have the passage in Ephesians, and then we have a very important one in Hebrews 12. Some have called Hebrews 12 God's woodshed. It has a lot to say about God's discipline, the fact that it's universal. God disciplines His children. He loves us. He cares for us. But then it gives the warning about God's discipline that if we don't respond properly to it, some very bad fruits can come. You know people, don't you? Something happened. They were never the same. I don't mean never the same. Experiences change us. I don't mean that in a bad way, but I mean never the same in their countenance towards God. Never the same in the way they treated others. Never the same in being open. See, Hebrews 12 is warning. He warns there about bitterness. In fact, he calls it a root of bitterness. And it's interesting, the use of the word root, he, he's saying it grows and spreads under the surface until it springs up and it, it defiles many. In other words, Paul is warning, if he is the author of Hebrews, I think he is personally, but whoever wrote Hebrews is warning, bitterness cannot be self-contained. It will go subsurface for a while. But it's going to come up. It's easy when bitterness seizes us to kid ourselves into thinking it doesn't affect any other area of our life. It's a lie. I don't know who said it. Most of you have probably heard it, but somebody made the observation carrying bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting it to hurt the other person. It's an accurate assessment. And really, if you boil it down to our roots, and listen, any one of us this can happen to, and any one of us has harbored bitterness at some point. But when we allow that to happen, there's really... Two primary problems with that. I think if we boil it down to brass tacks, here's what we find. One, we have too high of a view of ourself. I don't deserve this. I thought God was going to do this and He didn't, etc. The other problem is we have too low of a view of God. He didn't do what I think He should have. He won't deal with that person, so I'm going to stay bitter to make sure they don't get off the hook because if God's not going to exercise justice, I guess it's up to me to set the universe straight. Now that sounds ridiculous. But in those moments, if we analyze our thoughts, I think that's what we find a lot of the time. 
How about wrath and anger? See those two words? Bitterness and then wrath and anger. And again, we read those and think, what's the difference? But again, we see the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is very important here. Wrath, that word for wrath, it speaks of explosive anger. Losing your cool, hot-tempered, short trigger. It's very quick and it's rising. It burns up and it subsides. It's sort of like fire falling from heaven. Woomph! That's wrath. Now here's somebody over here says, well, I don't. I don't have a bad temper. Maybe I used to, but I, I, don't, I don't have one anymore. Well, that's good. But anger is much slower in its rising and much longer lasting. The word for anger, it's like a pot on low heat. It's just simmering. Just simmering. Just, just steaming. A little bit below the surface. It never quite explodes or boils over. You know, in my mind, I think of the last trip to Yellowstone, walking by these pools that are just kind of blurping. That's like this word anger. And you know you're standing on top of a big caldera and that baby's going to blow one of these days. But so far for hundreds of years, just blurps, just simmers. So wrath is fast, boom, explosive, temper, and anger is slow, simmering, seething just below the surface. It's an abiding hostility. Now, which one of those is worse? (laughs) I can't answer that. I suppose our nature would say whichever one we don't have is worse. (laughs) Then he says, uh, how about clamor? Uh, That means uh, an outcry. In fact, it actually is imitating a raven's cry. You know that caw, caw noise they make? He's saying, don't squawk like a raven. It means an outcry. And somebody says, well, I'd, I'd never swing a fist. I don't beat and punch things. Don't throw stuff for people down the stairs. Well, that's good. But clamor is outbursts of words. It's, it's shouting down opponents. It's, it's having to win the argument. It's having to get the last word. Evil speaking, actually that Greek word there is blasphemia. Obviously, that's where we get the word blasphemy. Now, usually in the New Testament, it is translated blasphemy, uh, speaking evil of God. But in this case, in the context, it's referring to speaking evil of those that belong to God. Now, there's times you have to confront sin. There's times you have to warn against things. There's times you have to deal with hard stuff. But think about this. When you are speaking evil about an actual, real Christian person, you're speaking evil of God's temple. You're speaking evil of His property, His bride, His building, His friend, His possession. And so that word blasphemia, I think, is added as, a, as kind of a warning label. <laughs> Sp- 
speech with the intent to injure. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will truly hurt me. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. I think most of us know the biggest hurts in life are often verbal. Whoever said that little poem the other way it's supposed to be said had no idea about real life. Words will never hurt me. Baloney. This little chunk of meat in our face has the possibility to be a conduit of righteousness and goodness and love and mercy or to be a conduit of death to ruin. Well, think how many ways evil speaking can happen. Assuming motive. I know why they did that. I've done that. I mean, I've said that before. Do I really know that? Probably not. Insinuations, accusations, exaggerating circumstances, sharing the unnecessary. I don't remember what sermon it was some time ago, but I remember asking us the question, haven't you ever done it? Something happens and in your mind, you've figured out why they did it and how long they've planned it, and you've already held the entire jury and court session in your head, and you've been judge, jury, and executioner, and you've got it all figured out until you get a piece of information that blows your whole theory to pieces and humbles. You ever have that? I've had that happen a number of times. You'd think I'd learn. So, evil speaking. Speaking injuriously of God's people. And all that, of course, can be done under a cloak of concern or zeal for truth. We have to be careful. How about this one? All, how much? All malice. You know the word malice, it just means badness. A vicious character. It's getting even. And there's lots of ways that can happen. How about fantasizing about getting even? Where does sin start? It starts in the mind. Ever find yourself taking pleasure at just fantasizing about settling some score? And of course, when you do that, the circumstances are perfect. You say just the right thing, and you walk off the hero into the sunset. And the cool part is, you get to do it over and over and over again, and it feels good. The Lord says, all malice. In other words, replace those thoughts with the right. All right, now, what am I to do with these things? Put away. Okay, there's our imagery again of the coat closet, which runs all the way through this passage. So, you have uh, the old man you are to put off. And you find the carnal, full, and natural virtues in verse 31. Verse 32 is the new man with its supernatural virtues. All right, what's required in order to put these off? We've already said multiple times just in this passage, it doesn't just happen. Well, obviously, salvation has to happen first. What's the central problem with humanity? 
You know, people come to us with life issues and they want help because they know you're religious or whatever else. Remember this, the root issue always comes back to who is Jesus Christ to you. Always comes back to that. So these counseling opportunities are a wonderful time to, to draw people to the cross. Somebody says, my marriage is a disaster. Okay. Why? And you start rebuilding from the cross up. So salvation is an absolute necessity in this discussion. It's taken for granted because this is written to a church full of Christian people. And by the way, I don't know that we're going to get off on the side trail, but I'll just mention it. When we get to forgiveness in a minute, a constant spirit of unforgiveness is one biblical warning sign that you may not know God. I'm not saying it's dogmatic, but there are warnings along those lines. And really the idea is if you understand how terribly you sinned against the God of heaven, how can you really hold on to that grudge, which is so small in comparison? So salvation is a prerequisite. What comes next? What has to happen in order to put these things in verse 31 off? Well, there has to be a recognition that all of these things are evil, wicked, and destructive little tumors with teeth. And that they're grieving to God. So we have to determine, I'm done with excuses, I'm done sugarcoating, I'm done justifying my white-collar sin. Oh, well, at least I don't do that. One side says, well, I don't have a temper. I don't, I, don't, I don't explode. And the other side says, well, at least I get my temper over with and I don't stay mad. You know, I'm Irish. I get over it quick. But he says, well, I don't at least open my mouth when I'm mad. And somebody else says, well, at least I speak my mind and you don't have to wonder. I mean, what are those? They're like cannons of excuses shooting back and forth. And we're all, you remember the old statement? Excuses are like armpits. Everybody's got a couple and they stink. <laughs> and we've got lots of them. So we have to recognize these are just as ugly as God says. There has to be confession of these ascends to God. An honest dealing with these a sin, a willingness to turn and want to change. We have to know and believe what God says about His own character and our sin nature and what He did to it at the cross, Romans 6. And then we have to replace the old man and his activities with the new man and his righteousness. So, in fact, you can see the parallel here. Instead of bitterness, there's kindness. Uh, it actually means useful, helpful, good, virtuous, or uh, easy to get along with. James writes about that the wisdom from above is easy to be entreated, approachable, as opposed to distant, acrid, nasty, and defiling. So kindness is really set at variance with bitterness. It's the opposite. You put this off, you put this on. 
Now, instead of wrath, anger, clamor, carrying on like a raven, and evil speaking, there is tender-heartedness. It actually means having strong bowels. Now, uh, I don't come to anyone here and say, boy, you have strong bowels. It, this is old world usage. But we get the picture. It means uh, well-compassioned, sensitive to your own shortcomings, and therefore able to feel the pain and plight of others. Somebody says, well, that's just not me. Baloney. It's not you because you don't believe God and you won't put it on and you won't do what He says. Put this off. Put this on. Put this off. Put this on. Just like God is willing to endure grief on our behalf, uh, we need to be willing to endure grief on behalf of others. And one or the other is going to push the other one out. How about malice? Instead of malice, what is there? There is forgiveness. Instead of getting even, there's dealing with it biblically, letting it go. What is forgiveness? It was about a year ago that we spent 10 weeks on a series called Understanding and Exercising Biblical Forgiveness. So 10 sermons on that topic. And actually, our, our main text we started with was uh, right here, Ephesians 4.32, because there's so much said there on the topic. Now that's still on our website if it would be a help to somebody. If you've never gone through an extended study on that topic, I recommend that you do somewhere. Very, very important. Um, with our remaining time, though, we're just going to summarize some of what we covered there. In fact, I brought the printout from that. It's called The Four Realms of Biblical Forgiveness. If you would like one after the service, I brought some. Please come ask me. I'm just going to uh, go through some of the points from that. And I uh, may generate more questions than I answer in the short time we have, but let's at least try to cover it quickly. I'm not content to just say forgive because of all the misinformation on it. Let me just summarize a little bit and talk about what does forgiveness mean. First of all, among the Lord's people, this is an ongoing necessity. It is not a one-time act. In fact, we talked about it last year. It's like the oil in a machine. You take the oil out of a machine, what happens? Friction builds. The thing overheats and it blows up and it quits. And... Forgiveness is like the oil in human relationships. A church, a family, a friendship, a marriage, you name it. It's universal anywhere sinners are present. And notice he says forgiving. Forgiving who? It's important he doesn't say forgive others. He says forgive one another. Why is that important? Because every one of us take turns being offender and offendee. That's why. I guarantee you, if you are in this uh, church group any length of time, somebody here is going to offend you. I'm not encouraging them to. I am going to offend you. I don't want to. Trust me, I don't want to. More times than I can tell you, I go home so frustrated after preaching 
because of all the ways I should have said things differently. I'm going to offend you at some point. I don't want to, but I will. He says, forgiving one another. It's to be this unilateral oil in the machine that knocks the friction down and keeps the thing going. It requires a supernatural ability. Biblical forgiveness is part of the new man that we are to put on. Uh, forgiveness is commanded. Here and in other passages, it's not optional. And really where we're going with these points is there's mass confusion on the topic. Whether it's counseling sessions so-called, or psychotherapy, or other therapy, or books, or movies, uh, erroneous concepts on this are legion. I'll give you some of them. One is minimizing sin. Oh, it wasn't that bad. That's not a biblical way to deal with sin. There's redefining sin. If somebody offends you terribly, sins against you, and they come and say, boy, I'm sure sorry for my mistake. They're not dealing with it right. There's a difference between mistake and sin. There's forgive and forget. Believe it or not, that's not a biblical concept. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, you and I uh, forget the things that we want to remember, and then we remember the things we want to forget. I'm, I was at the doctor yesterday, and we're trying to get chunks of rusted metal pulled out of Simeon's eyeball. And I did what all parents hate to do. I'm standing there, and she looks at me and goes, what's his date of birth? And I just stared at her and blinked. I really did. I couldn't even remember the month. It's horrible. I know it is. I could tell you about a lot of hurts in my life. <laughs> but I couldn't remember that. <laughs> the idea of unconditional forgiveness. Generally, that's a wrong understanding too. We'll talk about that in just a second. And again, we'll go through it quickly. And then the idea of forgiveness without confronting the problem. That's also unscriptural. All right, so what is forgiveness, quickly, as taught in the Bible? There's a large clue given here. How are we to forgive? How? Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now that tells us a lot. God's forgiveness is our pattern. That's huge. So we want to understand forgiveness. We've got to analyze how God forgives. God's forgiveness is not a feeling. It's not merely a fact. It is a promise, which is what forgiveness is. It's a promise that I will not hold this sin against you anymore. And when you come to Christ and He says you're forgiven, He's saying in effect, I will not, I will not remember your sins and iniquities anymore. By the way, it doesn't say God forgets. When people say that, God forgets you. That's not, He doesn't forget your sin. He doesn't remember it. What's the difference? Forgetting is a passive character failure. Not remembering is a deliberate choice based on dealing with it properly through the blood of Christ. It's not like Jesus is going to look at these scars and go, now why are those there? He knows why they're there. But it's been dealt with so completely by a God with unchanging character that it's gone. I won't bring it up again. But when you forgive a person, you're extending a promise saying, I will not hold this against you anymore. 
Now quickly, I just want to mention things. When I say four realms, let me talk about it. There's four types of forgiveness in the Bible. Two of them have to do with God. Two of them have to do with us and our forgiveness of others. Let me ask this question first. Is God's forgiveness unconditional? Think about that. If God's forgiveness was unconditional, you and I would never need to confess sin and hell would not exist. Think about that. If you say God's forgiveness is unconditional, then nobody's going to hell and it doesn't matter how we live. So forgiveness, number one, is God's judicial forgiveness. That's what's dealt with when you and I come to Christ as Christian people. It's a one-time act of God when He declares us righteous and forgiven. Is there a condition? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved. That's the line of demarcation between a forgiven person and an unforgiven person. You humble yourself, you come God's way, you take the sacrifice He provided, and He takes your sins away. Of course, the result, you're turned from an enemy into a child of God for all eternity. As many as received Him, to them gave He power or authority or the right to become the sons of God. Then in our Christian life, there's parental forgiveness. That's God forgiving us at a household level. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with our fellowship with God. The illustration in a family is huge. Uh, your child can be out of fellowship with you, but they never stop being your child. They're still your son or daughter, but they can sure be distant from you. And so when you believe in Christ, if you actually have your sins are gone, they're taken away, they're never coming back, but then with respect to fellowship. We have a passage like 1 John 1.9. If, see there's a condition, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And somebody says, well, I thought I was forgiven. You were judicially. Your standing has changed. But with respect to fellowship with God, you can't walk with Him unless you're agreed with Him. He's not coming to your side. You better get on His. And so the idea of confession of sin is not, oh God, I did wrong. Confession means to speak the same thing. Confessing sin is to get down to brass tacks, to call it what it is, to not make excuses, to actually deal with it. Okay, so judicial forgiveness. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Parental forgiveness. Ongoing fellowship with God. If we confess our sins, He'll cleanse us. What about our forgiveness of others? There's the need to deal with offenses. Godward, meaning... We have to deal with people's offense to us with God no matter what anybody else does. There's people we cannot reconcile with. People die. There's people that won't talk to us. There's people that we don't know where they went. There's situations where we can't always make it right. And there's situations where people aren't going to come to you and make it right. What do we do? Well... This is a level of forgiveness that can always be extended regardless of how others respond to confrontation. It doesn't mean we don't bring it up when we have opportunity. But this means I can be okay with me and God and not become bitter at the world because of what somebody else did. And really, there's two conditions to that. One is to understand the greatness of my own sin against God in comparison to anything anybody's ever done against me. 
Matthew 18, remember Peter, how often should I forgive that dirty, rotten brother of mine? And, and the Lord gives this parable. Here's a guy who owes a few pence. Here's a guy that owes 10,000 talents. And he, you know, the guy that was forgiven the 10,000 talents is grabbing the other guy's neck and going, pay me what you owe! And that's what we do sometimes with other people. You owe me! And the Lord's saying, so uh, I forgave you an infinite debt and you're going to require a few cents from that guy? You see, there's a thought problem. So pillar number one of that forgiving, being able to be at equilibrium with God no matter what others do to me, one is recognizing the enormity of my own sin, and two is understanding the sovereignty of God. And we talked about Joseph's life. One of the most astounding statements on God's sovereignty anywhere in the Bible. What kept Joseph from bitterness? What does he tell his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20? You meant it unto evil. He didn't sugarcoat it. What you did was wrong and wicked. But let me tell you something, brothers. Here's what kept me at peace. God meant it unto good. You see, I was never out of God's hand no matter what you did to me. Many passages deal with that, but what are the results when we have a right thought process? There's a desire and willingness to reconcile if possible. Romans 12, Matthew 18. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking is put away. Vengeance or malice is left in the hands of God. Ephesians 4, Romans 12. Prayers are answered. Do you know that our level of forgiveness goes hand in hand with our level of answered prayer? It was really something. In fact, we won't turn there. I was going to, but again, if you want this sheet or you can write the reference down, Matthew 11 or Mark 11 the Lord says, when you stand praying and you remember there's something between you and someone else, forgive. And He says right there. And then you wonder, well, wait a minute. Why do other passages say, go to the person. Stop what you're doing and go to them. Different, different concept. This one, you go, if you, you go if you can. Mark 11 is talking about a situation where you can't. You can't deal with it. And so the issue is between you and God with this offense that happened to you. And he's saying, forgive. Forgive. And then, of course, lastly, there's dealing with the offense manward, which is absolutely necessary. And this is confronting sin and others who've sinned against us with the proper attitude when necessary. Now, Peter says, charity covers the multitude of sins. There's going to be a lot of sins in the Christian life. People offend us, little things. We just let go. Love covers them. And, and the more mature we are, I think the more we're able to do that. But when the lid gets blown off of that cover and you're honestly offended, we need to check ourselves. Am I actually offended? Keeps coming up. Okay, now you have a responsibility. And you are commanded, Luke 17, to go to that brother and deal with it. Uses the word rebuke, but you go and you bring up the sin. And what's supposed to happen, the offense is brought up, the offense is confessed. Remember, it's like passing a ball. Uh, somebody's offended you, they don't know about it, and you're pining away of bitterness. Whose fault is it? It's your, you're the one commanded by God to go. God tells you, go pass the ball. Boom. All right. I'm, I'm telling you, you've offended me. Now the ball's in your court. They catch the ball. Now what? Now they have a responsibility. Am I going to deal with a sin or make excuses? So they say, oh, I, I, I was wrong. I sinned. Will you forgive me? 
Now the ball's passed back. Boom. Now you have it again. Are you going to forgive or not? The choice is back to you. Now, the Bible does deal expressly in passages like Matthew 18. What about when that cycle breaks down? We're not going to get into that. But this is why there's things like church discipline, which is a topic I hate. It is. But the reason it's in the Scriptures is because we need to understand this. Oftentimes when something like that happens, people say, well, you're just being unforgiving. No, you don't understand how forgiveness works. Sin is not, forgiveness is not just dropping evil behavior. It's confronted when it needs to be. But when we can't, it doesn't mean we have to pine away in bitterness. We can still be at equilibrium with God. So we say, all right, I forgive you. Now I've extended a promise. I'm not going to use this against you anymore. And of course, the mental battle is going to start. The flesh is going to want you to dig that up. You can't. That's in a nutshell, sort of a balanced view on, uh, on scriptural forgiveness. Now before we take communion, let me ask the question first of all, do you really know Christ? And when I ask that question, let me say this, it's important we, we, we examine ourselves the right way. Ultimately, why does God save me? Because He's God. It's not because I was sorry enough. It's not because I believed enough. It's not because I cried enough. It's not because I said the right words. My confidence has got to rest in His accomplishment, His willingness and ability to save me. That's really where security is going to come from. Oh, there's the element of my own life my own walk with God backing that up. But ultimately, security comes from what God has said, what He's promised. Have you put your faith in Christ alone? Let me ask it this way. If, you say, if I say, what are you hoping in for forgiveness? What's your answer? Is it Jesus paid it all, period? Or is it that plus something? You see, that plus something's our problem. By the way, that's the problem with false religions all over the world. It doesn't matter what hat they wear. They're all, they're all either Jesus plus something, or they're no Jesus plus something. They're one of the two. Let me ask this. Are you at peace with others? Now, this is, this is an important nuance to this question. As much as lies with you. Romans tells us, live at peace with all men. As much as lies with you. Why would he say that? Because there's times we can't fix things. Any of you fix-it people here? It bugs me when I can't fix something like I, I really, I hate it. I am slowly learning to be at rest with God even when I can't fix it. I'd, I'd like to, believe me, but I can't always do that. So, as much as lies with you, Are you at peace with others? Is there bitterness you have not dealt with? Is there a root there? Maybe, maybe no one sees it, but you know it's there. And one of these days it's going to spring up and it's going to start defiling. How about anger 
explosive temper or abiding hostility, wrath or malice, dreaming of getting even. I mean, are you sitting here this morning willing to recognize these as the malignant monsters that they really are? I mean, we, we partake of this bread and cup together, and it, it symbolizes a lot of things. Yes, the body and blood of Christ, but beyond that, one of the major things this symbolizes is that it's a cup of forgiveness. And part of the purpose for something like this, we can examine our own life and say, am I going to take this cup which represents the blood of Christ, which was shed for me in my horrible sin, and I'm going to drink this knowing there's somebody else who I have a few cents of problem with, and I'm not going to forgive them. You see, that's, what, that's one of the reasons we have times like this. The Lord says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do in remembrance of me. And part of that is forgiving the way that He did. So with that, let's begin our communion service. If I can have the two men come forward. And if you would join me in 1 Corinthians 11... One of the key passages in this topic. Let me just say a word at the beginning. Two things. Number one, who may partake? The Scriptures make this plain. This is for Christian people. People who have trusted Christ alone for salvation and been biblically baptized in obedience to Him. So this is for saved, baptized people. Now, with respect to our church, church is carried out different ways. Uh, some have what's called closed communion, meaning if you're not a member here, you can't partake. That's not our position. Some say we're open communion. Any Tom, Dick, and Harry off the street can just come in and have some free bread and juice. Well, that's not our position either. I don't walk around and see who does what. I try not to look. But I'll tell you this. Scripturally, we have a warning of partaking of this in a wrong way and not being right with God or not being a Christian at all. In fact, Paul told this church at Corinth, there were people from their church that were sick and in the graveyard because they abused the Lord's table. That's a serious warning. And so if you're here, you're a, you're a Christian, you're baptized, you're walking in fellowship with God, attending a good, solid church, you're certainly welcome to partake. I leave that on other people's conscience, but I, I have to give the warning. Secondly, I want to point out what it says here. Verse 27 uh, wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man so examine himself, and let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now, it doesn't say unworthy, because none of us should partake. We don't deserve to... I don't deserve to be called a Christian. But it says unworthily. That means in an unworthy manner. In other words, it's a warning to not partake of this without dealing with known sin first. Lord isn't saying if you're unaware of a sin you committed when you were six, don't partake. That's not what He's saying. But He's saying sin you're aware of. Don't harbor unrepentant iniquity and take these elements. So with that, we're going to begin. We'll just take a few moments of silence here and give us opportunity to search our own heart.
and see what might be there uh, before we go further. Father, we thank you that you are a God who's ready, forgive, ready to forgive and quick to pardon. And you tell us, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Help us to trust, Lord, in your faithfulness. Sometimes we don't feel very forgiven. It doesn't matter. I thank you, Lord, that you're willing to take away our sin. Help us, Lord, as we remember these elements which represent the body and blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Now backing up uh, just a little bit, we see in verse 23, Paul says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread. When He had given thanks, He brake it and said, Take, eat. This is My body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Would you ask the blessing of the bread? Yes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Father, this, these crackers do not save us. We know that it is your flesh and blood that was shed for our sins. It is uh, through grace, by faith, Father. It was a gift from you, and we thank you for that. Father, I pray that you will help examine our hearts and our lives, help us to confess sin, to have close fellowship with you. Father, we ask for your blessing on this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me.
Well, let's close with one verse for him. Thank you, gentlemen. You guys can sit down.